My ticker, not gonna slow me down. Look at that photograph out there, all blown up. Good guys, locking up the bad guys. There's the old crowd. Yeah, I remember bank robbery in 1979. Got the head man on the phone. He was so mad. Got his daughter down here, put her on the bullhorn. He cried like a baby, went to pieces. They marched out, single file, hands in the air. That was 40-something years ago, went like that. I'm going to have a hard time getting my generation off the stage. Willie Nelson's still doing concerts. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, Dad, Willie Nelson is a guitar player, and he's not doing a lot of heavy police work. This is scary. It's new. I never saw a body like that. It's a murder. It's nothing new. Treat it like a murder. You get the team together, all right? You get all the guys together, you handle them, I'll handle everything else. Oh, my God. What is this? 11 new emails on this thing this morning. Welcome to a new year, a new series, but the same old podcast. Here on this podcast at the intersection of faith and fear, we discuss every week what scares us in order to find what saves us. This is the fear of God. Speaking to you right now is one of your hosts, Nathan Rouse, and typically with me is fellow co-host Reed Lackey. And, you know, he was here a minute ago, but... He said he needed to go finish his forensic psychology degree at his college online. I mean, we went to the same college. I don't know if he enrolled in some new classes or something, you know, but personal enrichment is a great thing. In the meantime, allow me to welcome you back into a series where we put our 2020 costume back on and haunt the night. That's right. You are in part three of 2020, 2020. 2.0, a series loping around in the dark for those horror films from last year that we just didn't get around to. Today, specifically, we'll be looking at The Wolf of Snow Hollow. But I am getting ahead of myself, as I am prone to do, because here at The Fear of God, we explore. We don't explain. Except for right now, when I explain that you can listen to The Fear of God at your nearest podcast platform, you can watch The Fear of God on YouTube, And you can browse The Fear of God on the web at thefearofgodpodcast.com where you will find Reed. Hey, buddy. I'm right here. You are. I'm just there. I am am the featured presentation on fearofgodpodcast.com. That's. You are. That's really it. I mean. Merchandise section is just a big picture of me. Dr. Reedenstein. That's right. Full effect. That's right. That's right. Is it weird ever? Do you have. I don't mean to put you on the spot here. Do you have the magnets of Frank and Nathan and Dr. Reed and stuff? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Remedy that. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was worried. 
set you up there. No, um, no, 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 I do. Isn't that weird sometimes to be like, that's a, that's a, that's a magnet. It's a picture of, of me. Us. That's yeah. right. Yeah. It's no less anyway. weird than seeing it on the shirt or on the pillow sure. or in the, sure. on the, uh, you know, everything else. What, but you, do you have the pillow? I don't have, I the, don't pillow. have the pillow. I've thought okay. about it. I've thought about it. I'm like, <laughs> it feels a little too like. Uh, yeah, a little kitschy. But, uh, but yeah, sure. I mean, maybe. I mean, for I me, guess. it'd be kind of weird after recording a late night recording session, just go crawl in bed and put my head on us. <laughs> <laughs> Even just saying it that way, at least yeah. it's like, no, thank yeah, you. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> For sure. And then you go downstairs the next morning, you see us on the magnets on your fridge when you get your creamer out, and then you go pour a like, cup of coffee in us mug. In, in an us mug. Is, yeah. Yeah. When yeah, you put yeah, on yeah. your us, you know, all all that we're missing is like us soap. And, undies. you get know, oh, there it is. <laughs> Me undies. Okay. So, <laughs> so. Uh, yes. So, so, okay. yes. Stepping right off that. Uh, Me too. Is that what you just said? <laughs> No, um, it's, just right it's, well, it's time for business time, Riri. Oh it is gosh. business time. Business. Why don't okay. you tell the listeners what their primary point of business is these days? Okay, so the main thing we're pushing right now, and we are pushing it very heavily, although we have received some really, really great submissions already. Um, we are encouraging you, the listeners, as part of our Umbrella series this year, these uh, sequence of films that uh, sort of explore uh, one of our key philosophical tenets, we're ex- engaging very deliberately in 2021 with what scares us and what saves us. And we're starting, as the structure of the phrase, with what scares us. What that means for you is we want you to go to fearofgodpodcast.com. We want you to click on the banner at the top. That'll take you to a submission form. And that form is for you to tell us what scares you. And what we mean by that is you fill out your name, your email address, and then think about whatever piece of media it is, maybe most prominently a film, but could be a book, could be a particular music album, it could be a poem, it uh, could be a painting even. I mean, whatever, wow. whatever it is that really sticks in your psyche as, hey, this is what scares me. We want to hear those stories. And particularly... We want to hear those stories, uh, you know, on personal levels for you, um, and we will probably be sharing some of those stories, uh, if not all of them, uh, on the show as the year progresses. But the the other big fun thing that we want you to take advantage of is this is your opportunity to pitch to us and tell us something that you would like us to cover that we haven't covered already. Um, so as as we've seen some of these submissions come in, most people have been telling us about things that scared them, and, and maybe that's something we've already covered, or maybe it's just a personal anecdote, and all of those are great. We're loving it. Um, a couple of people have submitted some entries that we have not yet covered, and you can stay tuned because it is a high likelihood we're going to cover it in, in terms of this series. Um, so by all means, go to the website, fill out that form, tell us what scares you. What sticks in your mind as like the 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 answer you cite when somebody says, what's the scariest movie you've ever seen? Or uh, or, or what's the, the thing that scares you or, or disturbs or upsets you on a certain level? And we will get later in the year to what saves us. Uh, we will absolutely get there. We are just beginning this first run of films with what scares us. So listeners, this won't work if, without you. We've already gotten some great submissions. Join the throng. Go to thefearofgodpodcast.com. Fill out that submission. We'd love to hear from you. We're excited. That is exciting. We've gotten some good stuff, uh, some good feedback so far. So thank you to those who have already submitted. 
Uh, and thank you to those who are going to submit. Or going to submit again, if I didn't emphasize or it enough. Or going to submit again. That, or going to have their spouse submit. Or going to that's have, right. you know, their siblings submit. That's Maybe right. I'll get my brother to do a write-up for us. Hey! Um, so that's, that's how you can respond to the current overarching series we're embarking on this year. Um, also, as little business time, hey, go write a review. We'd appreciate that. Yeah. It's a new year. That'd be great. To write a review. That'd be good on that. Um, but read without further ado, I do believe it is time to what you watching, what you reading, what you watching, what you reading, what you listening to. Tell me about all your recent media intake. What you watching, what you reading, what you listening to. What a wonder. What a melodious uh, rendition oh, of the What You're Watching Diddy. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Reed, what you. Yes, sir. What you're reading? You've been reading a lot lately. <laughs> I've been reading a lot. Um, so, I do. I, 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 <laughs> have, I have another book. Yeah, well, yeah, listen, four years in, I finally discovered literature. Um, so, uh, no, no I, I, I've been enjoying very, very much falling back in love with just spending time reading again. So that's, that's been very, very, very good. And, um, been reading a lot of nonfiction, uh, lately. Uh, I'd mentioned, you know, before, I think, I think nearly everything that I've cited except for clown in a cornfield has been, um, uh, clown in a cornfield. And Come on, so, Jackson, get on that. <laughs> I think I, th- th- listening back to you telling that, I think I, I uh, it conjured for me clown in a cornfield shoe fly shoe clown in a cornfield shoe fly shoe so i mean it's you know skip to my cornfield which is also um that's it, also has a peewee peewee's big adventure reference there oh see that's when he's keeps, on the train with the hobo he keeps showing up man <laughs> this is the year peewee's big adventure clown in the cornfield shoe fly shoe shoe clown oh shoe gosh. okay what read go uh, anyway okay so the, the book i'm reading right now is a book by alan jacobs uh, who's somebody that's new to me, but uh, a lot of our mutual friends uh, already have a significant amount of affection for him. But Alan Jacobs has written a number of different books. The one that I've just most recently completed is a book called How to Think, uh, which is a very volcanic kind of title. Um, it is a very brief book. I was actually surprised uh, when I grabbed it. I don't it. like being told how to think. Well, you know what? It's, I mean, it's really, really in that way that just sort of plain, reasonable, understandable paradigm identification can, can be very helpful. Uh, it, it is mm-hmm. very much that. So Alan Jacobs is, a, is an intellectual and an academic. Um, he also coincidentally happens to be a Christian, which comes up frequently in his, in his writing, although this is not a like, religious-based text uh, instructing you on how to think. These are just uh, elements of Alan Jacobs expressing who he is and and the perspective from which he comes. Uh, so that comes up from time to time. But um, it is an incredibly insightful book. Um, I think one of my biggest takeaways is something from about midway through the book where he talked about the ways in which our hatred and our thought processes that are mentally violent towards kind of the out group who we've identified as the out group is actually a much stronger response, a a much more uh, aggressive response and propulsive response 
than our care for like marginalized or oppressive groups or people who actually might disagree with us. So in point of fact, what, you know, in a roundabout way, the kind of point he's trying to make is we just recently covered Cobra Kai. So this is a really good example of this. You will sometimes have the biggest antagonism with people who are the most like you because you've identified them as on the outs um, and and you've identified them as somebody that's like uh, opposing uh, to mm-hmm. your value system or opposing to your train of thought when in point of fact they are probably very very much like you and that degree of animus towards them uh, may heighten significantly because you've identified them. and I obviously just you know spit that out in about 45 seconds whereas Jacobs layers in anecdotes and psychological studies and statistics and all kinds of good research to found up his um, his premise. Uh, but it, it is a, it, it's a really impressive book, and I highly recommend it. It's called How to Think by Alan Jacobs. Hmm. That's what I've been reading this time around. I anticipate there's going to be just a lot of reading this year, which I, I love. I'm, I'm yeah. excited well, for it. Well, you so. know, it's about time, Reed. We've been waiting for you to yeah, enhance enhance your literacy. <laughs> um, meanwhile, I'm not sharing any books right now. Wow. So two quick notes here. Uh, I did recently watch on the recommendation of a uh, friend of the fog, Blake Collier and Matt Murray. In fact, uh, the <clears throat> it's on Hulu right now, the in and of itself, which is, Need uh, to make it to that. Need it's to a, that. it's a filmed version of a gentleman, gentleman named Derek Delgadio's one man show, uh, called in and of itself. And to say much is likely to say too much. So, hmm. uh, it is pretty impactful. Um, worth a viewing because you will ponder it greatly and just know he is kind of one part performance artist, sleight of hand artist. Um, I, I, I imagine he's got, uh, an actor sort of background, um, theater practitioner. So anyway, um, very interesting. It's probably about less than an hour and a half worth a look. Uh, but I won't say a whole lot other than to say, go check it out because it's easy to spoil it a bit uh with saying about anything um the other thing i did watch i'm sorry oh i was was just gonna say like did you know that frank oz directed in and of itself i did the film version on hulu yes i did (laughs) Mm. in and of itself it is Mm. Mm. (laughs) itself of and in (laughs) uh i did not know until it ended and i was like what the what (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Miss Piggy directed this thing. Yo, Don directed it. Um, <laughs> I worked out on that one. That was bad. Uh, but I did also recently watch um, uh, Regina King's directorial debut, One Night in Miami, which oh, uh, uh, an opportunely timed recommend here because she did just get nominated for director for the Golden Globes, as did Leslie Odom Jr. for his performance in this. Um, Interesting. I will say this about One Night in Miami. I love Regina King. Um, I have grown to appreciate Kemp Powers who co-directed soul and wrote the stage script for one night in Miami that Regina King has now adapted into this film. Mm. Um, 
like it reminded me of I, did you see big kahuna in like 1999 oh yeah that used Kevin to be Spacey, one of my favorite Danny devito yeah one of um, my favorite movies not because of the content but because it's a play put to film right, right it has that kind of vibe to it and i could see someone being like i don't totally know how i'm supposed to kind of take in this formatting so Got so it, it does okay. feel a little bit like a play made into a film but Got they it. kept okay. You know, they didn't adapt the play script to a screenplay. They just Understood. Sure. Yeah. did a filmed version of the play. Of the play. So okay. that's not really a knock. It's more just to just know from a formatting standpoint, it's going to be a little distinct in its mm. presentational mm. style. Um, but uh, strong performances. Um, so, so if you can acclimate to sort of the a bit more distinct format of it, um, it's 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 a really strong uh, uh, viewing. So nice. I do to check it out. recommend One Night in Miami, which makes me think of the 80s song One Night in Bangkok, which is not this song. What you watching? What you reading? What you watching? What you reading? What you listening to? Tell me about all your recent media intake. What you watching, what you reading, what you listening to. Lovely. That is beautiful. It is. It it's is. Really awesome. He'll appreciate that we called it beautiful because that's what it is. Because <laughs> that's what so it is. So re re. Re re. Re re. <laughs> ow, ow, ow. <laughs> What are you doing? I see a bad moon oh, rising. Wow. Okay, yeah, that yep. too. Mm-hmm. That too. Keep going. Clown in the corner. This is the all, all, all bluegrass. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> so neither of us going into this had seen The Wolf of Snow Hollow. Right. We committed before knowing if it Which was going to be Which is fun. I sort yes. of missed that feeling. And so it's, it's uh, I'm, you know... Uh, uh, excited about this conversation. Yes. Um, do you want to go first? Do you want me to go first? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I want to go. Read it. Let's, <laughs> Read let's do our <laughs> let's do our Stranger Things two thing again three, and, two, just, one, and just two. <laughs> huh? Ten. Oh, I know. God. I know. Okay. All right. Let's do. Let's do that. Oh really? So I'm what not, are we? What is? What are we? Yes. So we you're gonna give it. A general score. This is not fog meter score. You're just going to give it a general sure. score for yourself out of 10. And we're going to count down to three, and then we're going to say it at the same time. Are you ready? Are we okay. using halves or just whole numbers? Halves are possible. Halves are possible. Oh, God. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. Ready? Okay. okay. Uh-huh. Three, two, one, eight. eight. and a half. Oh! <laughs> 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 all right we've all grown right. so much in our friendships and stranger things too um <laughs> so uh you said eight i said eight and a half i win um oh, wow. so i'll go i'll go first i had no idea i even watched the trailer for this months ago mm, mm. and for whatever reason the trailer didn't kind of jolt me into kind of prioritizing it understood and yeah. I don't know, Riri, but <laughs> man, I don't know. <laughs> man, I don't know. Um, within thirty seconds, I was like, I, I'm digging this. 
Mm. I, I mean, like the the moody landscape, the oh, upside man. down landscape shots. I was like, I, I'm a sucker. I am an easy mark. Like <laughs> you, you just do a few little, you know, kind of stuff, trickery, cinema, cinematographically, and I'm like, <laughs> okay, I'm I'm here. Uh, and it is it is not too far off to say, I think I loved it. Yeah, sure. And I almost, after renting it, went to just purchase it. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So echoing that, and then you can pivot back if you had more to say, I had an active option prior to watching it because I had not seen it. The cost was such that I wondered if I should just go ahead and buy it because the cost to rent it was, was so up there. Um, and so I was like, oh, I mean, for that, I might as well just go ahead and buy it. And that way, if I enjoy it, but then there's also the risk of, yeah, but if I've bought it and I don't like it, then yeah. whatever. Yeah. Opted for the rental and, uh, following the viewing immediately regretted it when I queued it up to watch it a second time. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, you didn't I, I regret the queuing up to watch a second time. You regretted having right. not purchased it. I regretted having not purchased it. Cause this is a film I'm going to want to see again. Well, not to yeah. be completely outdone mm. before vast of night eight and a half. <laughs> before watching so i watched snow hollow about three nights ago i watched vast of night last night and mm, mm. before starting vast of night i just did because my rental was still in play oh gotcha. i didn't yeah. re-watch the entirety of it i just kind of skimmed, skimmed it again over yep. it mm-hmm. and yep. watched some scenes that i really loved Key and scenes. my wife actually this is really funny mm. so um i actually think there's a world where my wife would really like this movie and for the skim, she was in the room and I wasn't using the headphones, so it was actively on. And my wife loves to try to call stuff. And <laughs> in her defense, she's often pretty accurate. Mm, yeah. And Jim Cummings' character John, she was like, It's him. <laughs> and I didn't I didn't say anything. Mm-hmm, and we mm-hmm. were even getting to the end. And she's like, It's him, right? I said, No. No. She was not. like Yes, it is. I said, no, <laughs> at, at this point, no, I'm telling you, it's, I am actively telling you the truth. It is not. <laughs> you know? For a second, she put me in mind of, uh, of, of this, uh, well, you telling that story, put me in mind of the argument sketch. We're not having an argument now. Yes, we are. No, we're, no, we're not. <laughs> I just thought that was so funny. Yeah. That, oh. well, funny story about the rewatch, the reskim was because she was just, you know, checking it as it went right right i would stop on scenes just to refresh myself of kind of the energy of it well well we have a fireplace a gas fireplace and it's pretty chilly at night in north carolina right now and so she was sitting our kids are out of the house right now and uh we put them out in the cold y'all go over there for they're out of town yeah yeah (laughs) um and so she's sitting on the hearth kind of on her phone but keeps getting drawn when i'll start a scene you know it's oh, like okay sure. i'll watch right, the right, scene right, right, right. <laughs> so she's sitting on the hearth with the fire behind her and i start watching the scene in the police car with john and the the woman 
the mm. deputy or whatever yes. she is. Right, 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 right. Which, if you'll recall, is an extended dialogue scene that culminates in the beer bottle being thrown at the, yes. at the win- window. Very jarring. <laughs> right? She, 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 one, I think she cussed. Two, she was like, I almost just jumped in backwards into the fire just now because she was so alarmed by it when it happened. Oh anyway, gosh. so yes, I did kind of, it wasn't a full rewatch, but that was just because no, of time. Sure. Um, now, did you, ha- had you acclimated yourself to any of the kind of like, you know, presumably at some point you'd watch the trailer? Did you know kind of the trailer. energy of the movie? Did you know? No. Oh, really? No, I had, I had not seen a trailer. When we made the decision, purely based on the fact, again, can't be emphasized enough, purely based on the fact that it made the top 20 listener vote and that it was the only film of that list that neither you and I had seen, that was the only thing I knew. And knowing that there was some degree of intention behind going in blind, I didn't uh, watch a trailer. I didn't look anything up about it. I literally just acquired it and watched it. So went in as as unacclimated to the experience as I possibly could to just sort of receive. And to sure. that end, I will say this. To that end, it took me a bit of time to calibrate to what the rhythm of the characters and and, sure. and specifically the rhythm of Jim Cummings' character. Yeah. Um, that took a little bit of effort. And once I was on the wavelength, I was I was good to go. But that took a bit of calibration, and I wondered after the fact if maybe having watched a trailer or something like that might have uh, better prepared so. me for it. But I, you don't think so? I had watched a trailer months ago, as mentioned, and the trailer does convey a bit of a jaunty tone. Mm, um, okay, sure. So I knew going in that there may be a comedic edge to it, but didn't sure, know, sure. you know, I, in other words, the quirky energy of it wasn't super evident at least to my memory of the trailer got um, it okay although also humorously uh, my wife and i are actually leaving uh tomorrow after this recording for oh. a little mountain couple nights and and i just really romanticize a snowy uh landscape and i never oh. ever ever get it and so sure enough that that scene it's part of the opening vignette and i think it's when they're at the diner and the, it cuts to the exterior of the diner and the the trim yes. of the building is laced in lights and the background is this beautiful snowy mountain. Oh, my God. And I haven't told her. I was like, um, can we go there just without the werewolves? <laughs> like, <laughs> right. that looks amazing. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yes. No, um, I totally agree. Um, yeah. Did you have any did you have any trivial bits? You know, there weren't a lot of trivial bits. Of there note. really aren't. I, I, I would mention uh, just more anecdotally than anything else. Obviously, Robert Forster is a supporting actor in this film, plays the sheriff's dad and well, plays the sheriff. Yeah. You know, before, uh, you know, not the, the uh, Jim Cummings character is the deputy sheriff. I messed that up earlier. Um, and uh, Robert Forster plays his dad. Robert Forster is a, a real treasure of a character actor. Um, he's he's just exceptional at what he does performance wise. But it's interesting because he's had a long career, a pretty prolific career, uh, I think stretching back into the 70s, maybe even the late 60s. But he didn't come to a lot of uh, notoriety until, or at least pop culturally, I don't think he came to a lot of notoriety until Quentin Tarantino cast him in Jackie Brown. 
And then when he cast him in Jackie Brown, suddenly Robert Forster is like becomes a name and is known because of the pedigree that Tarantino brings to his films. Um, and so I remember very specifically, I had kind of since that time loosely followed some of his work. And uh, I remember the night Robert Forster passed away we was the same night by pure coincidence that uh, El Camino, the Breaking Bad sequel movie, had dropped. Is that out? Uh, <laughs> funny. <laughs> And um, he's and he's in that. And I remember not long after I saw the scene that he was in getting, you know, seeing the notification pop up that he that he had died. Um, and uh, this was his final film, the final film that he worked on. It's dedicated to his memory. Um, so, uh, you know, kind of bridging the gap of trivial bits and likes dislikes because I really appreciate his performance in this and really almost love his contribution to this film uh so just wanted to make a small little note about sure. the contribution of robert forster but otherwise no no real trivial bits of note that i could find i won't ask you to pray with me because of the gd lawyers <laughs> 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 um so loosely speaking this film uh, uh little utah town i think it's i know it was shot there but i, I presume right. it's also set there i can't recall exactly but that's a good question yeah i can't remember what uh, it said kind of you know snowed in type of scenario and uh some pretty vicious murders start to transpire uh specifically against women mm-hmm. and it becomes this uh and this is no spoiler although we typically will go there uh the movie starts dialoguing with itself and the characters within about whether there's a werewolf afoot in right in the town and and the jim cummings character john combating that at every turn and and peers on the force starting to indulge that type of uh flight of fancy and so um but while that's kind of the a plot what to me turned this into an i love is the sort of b plot of his journey and his relationship with the dad and with his daughter and, and ultimately those that feeding into some thematic notions that I find very powerful and fascinating. Absolutely. That get touched on. But, um, I think I just really loved the simplicity of the plot too. It, it had a very, you know, monster of the week X files kind of energy about it. Yeah. Um, though, though with your FBI being replaced by these dopey police force. (laughs) Um, What are some initial, you know, like as you kind of traverse your likes, dislikes list, what's something you want to call out? So the, I think one of the most noteworthy things about it is the, is the humor and the way that humor is used. I heard, I read after the fact, some comparisons to Coen brothers. And I don't think that's completely ill-advised although the coen brothers are a lot more precise and sometimes uh, a little bit sharper with some of their comedy um i feel like the comedy here is is a little bit more it's not absurdist but it's a little bit more to that extremity borders on that yeah yeah yeah. um (laughs) one of my favorite things i can't i can't quote it but one of the funniest, most hysterical things to me, and it actually would probably fit in a scare, is when John's having the dream, and mm-hmm. then the librarian wakes him up. Oh, it's hysterical. <laughs> it's, so it's hysterical. The librarian wakes him up, and he's like clutching his chest, and he's like, oh, oh, and then he just busts out with a big, F you! And, like, yeah. and, then, and then he starts walking up, he's like, he's like, you know what? 
Well, before said, that, before that, he says the librarian says, "You know, I didn't mean to startle you, but you were asleep." And he, well, I'm awake now. That's <laughs> <laughs> so funny. I'm awake now. And then he said, "He said, hey, when somebody when a when a uh, uh, officer of the law." Walks in and asks you to check out all of the creepy books and sleep at his desk. Maybe don't sneak up on him. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. he's like, this could have been a shooting incident in one of my deputies. Yeah. Okay, just next time. You know, and I'm just like, oh man, this is so funny. It's hysterical. Um, so yeah, I, 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 the humor in general is very effective. It's often very hysterical, and because I had not watched a trailer or anything, I, I wasn't prepared for it. So when it started to happen, because the first like ten, ten-ish minutes or so are really not humorous. You know, it's just sure. sort of scene setting. It's the couple, right, and right. The- yeah, and so when we first meet the the police officers and you start to get some of that wit thrown in it uh, it really just sort of disarmed me in a way and that that was part of the calibration that I had to have um that's another reason why I wanted to watch it the second time through cuz I was like now that about 40 minutes into the movie I feel like I'm on the wavelength let me go back and revisit the first 40 minutes on that same wavelength to just experience that appreciation again. Uh, but yes, very, very uh, it, it kind of entranced by the humor. I, I, I liked it quite a bit. Um, you know, one thing that I did read that I would uh, mention, and I think is 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 really a good thing, that the movie is... I didn't, I didn't really pick up on this until I read it after the fact, but I thought this was impressive. The victims, which, as you pointed out, are almost exclusively women, they um, take some time for each of the victims to set them up beforehand, as opposed to just the hapless victim walking down. Each of them has a scene completely without regard to the scene in which they... Their fate, yeah. Yeah, their fate, um, that just establishes them as a character and establishes them as somebody that we might need to be paying attention to because there's probably some story here. We first of all with the couple and you really think, I don't know if you thought this, but I really was kind of on the wavelength of, oh, okay, uh, he's antagonizing the guy in the bar. So sure. that's what this story is going to be about is, right. is the, you know, this poor hapless uh, woman uh, because her, her boyfriend, lover, whoever he is, uh, antagonized this person in the bar and that sets off this chain of events. Nope, not that. Then you have the ski instructor, mm-hmm. and you spend some time with her, get a little taste of how she teaches her class, and then also that she keeps running back to a, a presumably toxic, possibly abusive relationship because she has nobody else in the town uh, that is that is paying her any attention, generates a little bit of pity and sympathy, and then you have her ultimate fate. Um, and then, uh, you know, ending, uh, that stream of, of, uh, murders with the woman whose daughter, you know, and, and she actually, you know, kind of runs aground and helps the, the police kind of give some hints to, to them catching the guy. Um, and I just thought it was really impressive that what could have just been throwaway victims, they took, the film took time to make sure that we established them to such a degree that maybe they're going to be important to the plot. And in point of fact, they, they are in the sense that, this progresses the the threat to this town, uh, but uh, I just found that to be a kind of impressive bit of craftsmanship. Yes, well, yeah, there's some there's some thematic ideas there too um, mm, mm. that that we'll circle back around on. Um, okay, yeah, love the tone, comedic, but with this kind of sinister edge to it. There's a lot of I'll, I'll I'll touch on this comedic scene and then I'll circle back because you mentioned the comedy, I just name dropped it, but. I love 
the scene when the daughter is doing the homework and he comes in. It is hysterical to me <laughs> and scary as hell because of my own life right. and Starts three daughters. To talk to her though, but and then, yeah. you know, it's like, oh, <clears throat> you're doing that uh, biology homework? And she's like, oh, no, it's uh, it's geometry or something. Okay, all right. You want some help? Like, no, no, no. Do you still have that pepper spray I gave you for communion that time? <laughs> and she says, oh, that was a weird gift. And his response is, yeah, you won't need it, but I want you to keep it on you at all times. You know, <laughs> it just, so once you find that and keep it on you at all times, it just oh, devolves God, from there. But I love that, that scene. And what is fascinating to me about this movie is there's a lot of thematic stuff going on and I, I, I'm, I'm going to keep those intentionally at bay. Uh, okay. I was about to try sure. to walk back into it. Um, but I love the scene. So I'm, I'm really just going down my likes, dislikes list right now, if that's okay. Sure. Yeah. Um, please. Yeah. The, the, while I don't, th- you, you made a good point. The Coens have a more precise or refined version of their mm. film craft, which is fair, but this one, this film does flirt with some, some thoughtfulness in its delivery. Yes. Um, I love that her name is Mrs. Fairchild. She's the one with the daughter. Um, I love the scene in the diner when she encounters him, mm, but, mm, mm. but we never see him. We don't see him. Yeah. And, but that whole scene has that very ominous air of like, I like the blue car and she starts mm, getting the sinking mm. feeling. And, um, but you made a point. I don't know if you probably caught this, but, you made a point of identifying that she assists the cops, but on a certain level, she doesn't because what uh, you learn point. really yes. quickly is what we, the viewer perceive as she has this diner scene and then goes to report this to the cops. She ultimately is just one of a literal line out the door of quote unquote observers or that's witnesses right. to right, right, the, right. The, the suspect. Um, yeah. And so that's a, I love that sort of, pivot there mm-hmm. um love the relationship of the dad and john i just love the sincerity of the film man i love yes. it yes. like wears its heart on its sleeve for something that is quirky and could have easily um i'm gonna name drop something and, and express a dislike for it that maybe some listeners are gonna be like i knew you were dumb nathan but <laughs> Um, <laughs> I always knew he was dumb. There is a wavelength. There is there is a type of comedic film that requires a certain wavelength to enjoy that I've always had a hard time getting on that wavelength. For whatever reason, maybe it's because I'm elitist. Maybe it's because I missed <laughs> the boat. Maybe it's because I didn't do any illicit substances uh, <laughs> in my younger years. But something like a Super Troopers. Oh, okay. Which, okay, sure. Yeah, yeah. In a context, I can have an appreciation for the comedy of it, but in a general sense, I find just dumb Mm, mm, mm -hmm. that it has been years since I've even indulged trying to watch it. So forgive the lovers of Super Troopers for what might seem an overly broad sketch here. But to my recollection, it's pretty minimal on the sincerity and large Mm, on the absurdity. Yes, sure. Yeah. So there was part of me that was initially concerned with this. Like, is that, and in fact, it's probably back when I watched the trailer, it conjured that kind of energy for me. I was like, ah, I don't know. Um, Right. Right. And so then when you actually get into it and realize, wow, there's a lot of sincerity to Mm -hmm. an earnestness to the proceedings that I found just really refreshing. Right. Um, Right. But yeah, I love their relationship. One of my favorite scenes, Reed 
is when after Forster collapses before oh, the the runoff going. of everybody, yeah. and John is trying to exit the building and is telling the older woman to call the an ambulance and can't. It's a hell of a performance moment. It really uh, is. But from yeah. a character moment, he can't say what he's truly worried about and just knows help needs to come. He can't be present for actual reasons and emotional reasons. It's a, it's a beautiful scene. I loved it. And the way she tries to comfort him in that moment where she's like, I've got this, I've got this. It's yeah, yeah, it's really, and, and I'll bleed out from there, which is just an, an incredible, uh, incredible scene. And then after the really silly moment, where he goes and tries to beat up the the guy yeah, for the getting in the truck. Yeah, the boyfriend for getting in the truck with his daughter. And when he comes back to the hospital after that, and when he goes and sits down and she's looking at him, the way mm-hmm. this, she, she it, it's just so masterfully done. He goes in and he's clearly like frazzled and he's just, you know, been... Had pepper spray in his <laughs> he's eyes. Had pepper spray in his eyes and he goes and sits down and uh, and then he says, hi, and she says, dad. And then he sits down, and he's like, yeah, yeah, how, how are you doing? And she says, no, dad. And then that's when, man, what a great bit of filmmaking. That's when he registered it. He doesn't turn. He doesn't look. But that's when you see his face register the fact that the bed beside him is empty. and that's Which where, was occupied. That's yeah. where Robert Forster was, was laying. And so... The film tells you everything you need to know in that moment. Um, and she, uh, you know, acu- accusatorily, she's like, where were you? And then that that haunting, I was protecting the family, you know, which, again, I'm sure that that has some places you could go for theme as well. Have you? So I'd never heard of Jim Cummings. No. B- before this film. But I did a little bit of looking into it after watching this film. There's a film he made prior to this, and I guess this is the one that put him on everybody's radar called Thunder Road. Have you right. heard about? Have you heard about this? I mean, only about the same reasons you just described. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nathan, watch Thunder Road. Thund- oh, you've Thund- watched it since? Yes, yeah. I, okay. I, I, I was I was just curious. It's relatively brief, so I, I watch. I, I I don't want to say yeah? too much. Yeah, just watch. Prioritize it. Prioritize right. watching it. Um, like it's. It's a it's a special kind of piece, and huh. and and uh, Jim Cummings is bringing something really exciting to the cinematic conversation, and he plays a very similar kind of character as he does in Wolf of Snow Hollow, but sure, it, it's a drama, it's not a horror, um, and emotionally, it is. It'll it'll take you to some places that might be a little hard to go, but you will be grateful that you. Well, have I did the read an interview that. or a you know kind of write up about him after it that you know said that these some of the thematic elements are sort of of a piece with each yeah. other. Just um, all I'll say on it is just prioritize Thunder Road. I think you will respond very strongly to it. So yeah, um, um, yeah. Did. <laughs> um can i mention two more lines please. that i just love yeah please so one of the one of them i love just because i think this is a really like clever line it's not funny i think it's a really clever line and actually kind of a kind of a good piece of advice for somebody who's stuck in the fact that they didn't solve the thing or they didn't fix the thing uh-huh. uh is when she leans over to him in the car and says 
you still win when the other guy knocks the eight ball in. God, I love that line. Like, because of the context for it is because, like, that's the moment at which they think the murder has been solved. It's a red herring, but that's the moment at which they think the whole crime scene has been solved, and he can't cope with the fact that he didn't solve it and that he's going to receive a tremendous amount of criticism for the fact that he didn't solve it when it should have been so obvious and apparently was so obvious to other people. And I just love that line. She's like, you still win when the other guy knocks the eight ball in because I think that's a very sort of healthy perspective on this kind of thing. The other line, though, (laughs) that I think is so funny, almost because of the way it's delivered, he goes in and he, like, confronts the mortician. Mm-hmm. And then and then when he's confronting the mortician, he's like, do your job, do your job. And he, the mortician starts like slapping, your job is to find the suspects. Yeah. <laughs> After that line, and then he just hauls off and slaps him. It starts yeah. a, like a like a physical sort of altercation. Um, but no, there's just, those moments stood out to me as just like, oh my God, I got to write that down because that's one of the most unique things I'd seen in, in Did in you, uh, um, Spoiler alert, listener, uh, it's not an actual werewolf in the film, but it's not. Did you did you forecast what 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 were your thoughts watching it? Did you did you even try or was it uh, I'm along for the ride or did you start to wonder, hey, you know, I think there's a real thing here or, or what? Well, got to say, when they freaking showed us the wolf in all his glory in the second murder. Right. I was like, oh, right. It's a werewolf. Right. You know, like if 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 they had spent the time, like obscuring it and just showing body parts sure, or sure. just showing like like so when during the second murder that great shot oh my oh, god that whole that whole scene is this the ski instructor yes and the two pole the two yes poles yeah, of the, the screen yeah it was amazing exactly and and the the wolf just stands up what you learn later yes yeah, spoiler what you learn later is that it is a is it is a taxidermist in a wolf's like costume. attire. Yeah. yeah. Like a, like a costume he's fashioned presumably from a it's real wolf. Fuzz. Yeah. It's beach fuzz. But when he stands up and it's, it's, it looks from the distance like a wolf just rising to full height. Yeah. The, uh, uh, it's that, intense. That, and that disarmed me. I was just like, Oh, okay. It's a werewolf. Right. So I honestly wasn't think. So I was thinking about who is the werewolf right. going right, to be, right, who's right. going to have the big transformation. So I was all the more energized and excited when I discovered like, oh, yeah, it is it is a human who's perpetrating this, but it's not a mystical supernatural thing. It's this what I think what I find to be kind of a clever solution. The fact that it's a taxidermist who has this obsessive kind of serial killer uh, mode to him who uh, dresses up like a like a werewolf and has a sort of a wolfish personality to him so yeah well and this yeah. is because you touched on the 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 shot which is fantastic when he's go, coming after the ski instructor oh, uh, man. these are on my scares list but I'll, I'll throw them in here but the second shot that's so impressive of the wolf character is when fairchild is outside of her car and she oh. looks back and it's it's looming above the car whom we know which we know right. houses her daughter it was mm-hmm. oh my gosh that was yeah, intense. very harrowing. Yeah, uh, and oh, then absolutely. the third one would have been when Jenna and the boyfriend are making out, and it it attacks the car. Yeah. Oh yeah. my gosh. So, um, and, and that's one thing that you could like. Uh, like, I I largely loved the film. There is a little bit of logic leap that you have to do. The sure. fact that when yeah. you find out that it really is a guy in a suit, he does things that I don't know would be that easy for just a guy in a suit, even a guy yeah, his absolutely. size. Yeah. Um, uh, but the one thing that I kind of forgave it is the first place my mind went is the ski instructor gets her arm like 
severed at the bone. Yeah. But then I had to remember, okay, he's a taxidermist. Sure. So he's going to have... convenient. Yeah. It, it, it is, but he's going to have he's gonna, he's going to have some tools that are meant sure. to sever bone and meant yeah. to you know so it's like okay you can you can kind of buy that there's at least there's at least lip service to the plausibility of what we see. Absolutely. Uh, even if it still stretches our our believability a little bit. Yes, what does stretch it a little too far but I don't care is is timing. So for instance like mm, mm. the first victim at the cabin like the degree of severity of violence done against that woman's body for having <laughs> right. just right. been out there minutes you know it's like no oh, right sure sure sure, uh, sure. okay yeah. okay. <laughs> okay um no i get it i get let's it let's see before full into scares i just love the relationships um i love the moment when uh john has gone after um honestly i love i love the whole sequence from when john arrives at the taxidermist's house yes at the end yeah, that's great. i mean that whole last run is really fantastic but specifically very poignant to me was when he has been wounded but finally kills the guy and mm. or no she mm. she shoots and then he gets up and does so too but one of what you think is his last moments is a memory of he and his dad and it's just yeah, really beautiful right yes uh, moments so i love that a lot Let's talk about something real quick before full scare. So the the movie does a few really interesting takes. And what I mean by that, I'll, I'll name the three, one of which I don't even know is intentional, but I know two are intentional. So I imagine mm-hmm. the third might be the ski instructor. There's this lingering take. Do you remember this? When she's at the dining table in the mess hall or whatever the ski lodge is. Mm-hmm. And the shot is up the table. And so, but it's, there's no audio of them talking. It's like music over it. And she's talking and engaging with the peer she's with. And then she locks eyes on something that's in, that's camera, you know, but she sees someone and the whole tone turns. And I just couldn't remember because, you know, they flirt with some backstory about the elementary school or something. Right. I don't don't know if that's meant to be suggestive of she literally recognizes this person or anyway. So Mm, it was it was was just an interesting camera moment, interesting film moment. But then the other one is, I guess, what do you think, Reed? John leaves the daughter in the college in the dorm room. My working theory is that it's a gun. That's my working theory. And the reason and the reason for it is simply just because we see him adjusting his belt as he okay. leaves. Yeah, that's the the third. And, and yeah, yeah, and so um, we see him adjusting his belt as he exits her her college dorm. And they had a couple of times prior to that made intention to show us his gun on his yeah, belt. Yeah, yeah. So okay. so that's my working theory. Uh, yeah, I feel like that's a pretty a pretty strong uh, uh, case to be made for that because. Well, when I first watched it, it's clear she sees something other than the condoms. Right. But right. I didn't the first time pick up his belt buckling after. It was only mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. second viewing when I was skimming. I was like, what? A, what? What oh. is happening right here? And right. so it right, just, right, I right. just didn't do the extra mental work to connect because because Got I it, did yeah. ponder, is it the gun? But didn't think about the fact that he took yeah. his belt off or he put his belt back on. or Anyway, it's just a, a really like interesting... Yeah. Um, way to do 
what they do there. Um, yeah. And I think inten- obviously intentional about not showing us what it is so that we can have, I mean, you know, that leads you to that supposition. But um, I think the the point is meant to be that it's it's something that sort of is recontextualizing her relationship with her dad. And I think sure. that's the point we're supposed to take away from it is yeah. that whatever she sees, it has put her future interactions with her dad into a fresh context. Um, and I think that's that's meant to be one of the things we're supposed to walk away from with um other than the beer bottle and the the wolf in full wolf mode scenes any specific scares you want to address um i did find it uh so yeah wolf uh, (laughs) it's funny the first two things on my list are straight up shot of the werewolf in the second murder beer bottle um there's a moment it's it's not a scare it's just uh kind of upsetting uh when he's returning the evidence and he throws the 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 lady that spits in his face and he mm-hmm. throws the evidence on the porch and then you see the baby toy and that's the I should have I just wasn't sure I presumed it but I just wasn't sure if the child had been killed hmm. when yeah, yeah, yeah. Fairchild is killed um and so that that moment kind of solidifies like, OK, yeah, no, it's it the, the 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 little girl was killed, too. And that's that's really horrific to think about. I think it was wise for him not to show us much more than that, that literally sure. all we get is a rattle on the porch. Um, and that that was enough to sort of um, and I, I included that in my scares. Um, and then, oh, no, I it, it's but it's it's a moment we'd already referenced. I, I mentioned that the the attack on his daughter and the boyfriend is pretty harrowing. You know, just as a, as a suspense scene, I wasn't sure his daughter was going to make it. Um, so, yeah, I was I was pretty energized by that. Do you get the impression when John shows up to the taxidermist place that that's a, a character we were supposed to have seen before? We did just see him before. Yeah. When? OK. See, we that's- saw him, yeah, we saw him. We saw him twice before I registered. I registered his face. The. The moment that, like, first time viewing, because again, I did watch it twice, but first time viewing, I registered his face. He was, the the first time I remembered seeing him was after the first murder. He's the guy who supposedly owns the Airbnb. And he's the guy who said, like, my wife is going to kill me. You know, That's a different guy. No, it's it's the same guy. It's the same guy, Nathan. 90% sure that's the same guy. Because that would have been my guess, too. But but those, I'm almost certain those are different people. But go ahead and then he's I'll, in the interrogation room and then in the interrogation yeah, room i think it's a different and, person and but. and here's and so here's why listen but when john is talking to him in his house he says wife out of town right. and the guy says oh i'm not married if we had never seen him before there's no reason narratively why john would have thought because they're that in deliberately in the interrogation room and outside the the car the guy mentions his wife. Like he says, you know, like my wife's going to yeah. kill me. And then in the interrogation room, he says, um, you know, like, can I please call my wife or something, you know, or, or says something again about his wife. So then when John registers, I think there are two things in the sit down at the table moment that John right. registers as a red flag. The first is when he says, oh, your wife out of town. And then when he says, oh, I'm not married. And John's like, oh, I thought, but then he just sort of abandons the train of thought. Sure. And then the second thing being when the guy asks him about his daughter 
and that's I'm sure what pings John of like, wait a minute, how do you, how do you know about my daughter and everything? And so, so that's the no, I absolutely think that is the guy from the Airbnb, and that it's the guy from the interrogation room. Okay. IMDb, I, I'm not. I haven't looked yeah, at this. Right. If if IMDb cast list proves me wrong, I will just mea culpa it and say, "Wow, that's a that's well, a clever." What's slide funny of is is I'm looking because that would have been my only guess, but on my skim, those two actors do not look enough alike, uh, and because you see the the first scene you're referring to at the Airbnb, that that character is yes. standing outside, and he is not an abnormally heightened person but he's also um, hunched he's also standing on a on a a big truck that's heightened up and my other reason for thinking it's not the same person though though again i can't certify that in the moment um because some of these actors who are on the tertiary part don't have uh, headshots up oh is, sure, sure 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 is the gentleman you th- because again i'm with you that's who i initially wondered is this who we're signaling back to but mm-hmm. he also mm-hmm. though both of them have you know more or less shaved heads that first gentleman who does appear at the airbnb and then does appear in the interrogation scene has dark hair and he has um face a version of facial hair that that later gentleman doesn't i true true it'd be interesting ultimately if we can figure that out i am not stating you're not right but i wondered (laughs) the same thing and i intentionally looked and those two people looked different enough to me on that second skim anyway um interesting okay yeah, yeah and so all i was trying to figure out because though you may be right and that was my initial thought that that's the same character i i still think it might not be but what I did notice is that the library, John is using a book written by that character. I don't mm. remember his name, mm. but Patrick Murner, right. Murnery or something like Paul, that. Paul or Kearney. Peter, Paul, yeah, yeah. Or who knows? Yeah. Um, something. So Peter, that was Paul, the only Mary. definitive connection I, I could. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Whichever. <laughs> um, anyway. Anyway. So didn't mean to incite uh, uh, an argument. Are we arguing? We're not arguing. Yes, we we're are. not arguing. No, 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 no. <laughs> this is not an argument. This is a disagreement. No, no, no. It's just contrary. Um, so, um, yeah. But so, is it, yeah. I mean, moving, moving past that point. Um, so, I really like. I'm. I, I think this may take you know a, a breath of time. I'm curious to hear what you have to unpack regarding the thematic considerations of this film. I have some. I have some stuff, honestly. But, um, but there's some deliberate intention you've indicated through the course of this conversation that I want to, that I want to give leverage to if there's not, Oh, uh, this might be a lead in depending mm-hmm. on what things you're circling uh, around. Um, I absolutely love the character of detective Robson, uh, Julia, and mm-hmm. that she's the sheriff at the end and that she's so level headed and she's like the natural leader of the group. Whereas John's character is just such a toxic and volatile kind of leader. Um, and so I just, I just love that about it. I love that she's the sheriff at the end and that it's, it's real intentional with her character. And uh, so I just love her character and I hadn't given her a, a tremendous amount of attention in the conversation yet. So I just wanted to mention that before we dive into theme. Yeah. I, I, my, I had this astonishing kind of uh, ping while watching it the first time, even despite 
the violent nature of the you know acts that the wolf guy perpetrates that it was an impressively feminist film Mm. and yet at the same time i think what i feel as much if not more is perhaps an impressively egalitarian film and Mm. Mm. it just for a movie that's a that is quirky and actively comic and darkly comic there's some pretty impressive nods to a a bigger more fascinating conversation about not just violence towards women but Mm. agency of women which is why i was sort of kind of kind of pushing back a little bit when you were not pushing, but like saying, Hey, that's, that's interesting how that weaves in. When you say even these victims are given agency and personhood because Mm -hmm. it's also illustrating that point, you know, it became super clear to me when in the car, John says victims are always women. Killers are always men. Do you think women have had to deal with this since the middle ages? And he just gets a (laughs) blank look from her. And right, right. You could write that off as just a funny comedic observation, but I think it's kind of the heart of the movie. Mm. In addition to, and this is why I went from saying a feminist movie to an egalitarian movie. It's treating, it is treating the gender characters in this film as equal partners in their journeys. Right. You know, you have voiced to me, and I think, I think you'd be okay with me throwing this out because it denies it doesn't have any specific elements attached to it. But Hmm. you've voiced to me as a father of a son over the years, the, um, here's an inroad. It's always easy when we talk about violence, historically violence towards and against and perpetrated upon women and be able to say, patriarchy or men Mm. it's Mm. harder and and this is i'm putting words sort of in your mouth or refashioning what you've said to me over the years it's harder when men and young men have a hard time knowing their place to point to something right and say yes what's happening here and where is this coming from Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and i don't mean the the plagues of women are exclusively at the hands of men though maybe but other than just to say it's easier to point to right of course and i think what becomes really fascinating about this movie is it has utter empathy for john who screws up bad yeah almost at every turn but it's its goal is is empathic uh, and at the same time is as equally, I think, intent on empowering and and giving agency to and personhood of women in its story. Like, yeah, right. There's a grandly comedic moment where he blows up at the ex-wife in the diner, but mm. he's also kind of wrong. And, yes, you know, right. Right. The movie paints her a little comedically as the the 
the loudmouth blowhard, but she's also looking out for her daughter for whom her dad has not been around. Like, yes, right. You of know, our, our natural inclination is to side quote unquote with John. Cause he's our lead character. He's our point of view sure. character, but right, right, he's right, also right. just wrong or has been in the wrong. And so I think there's something really, and even read like feeding. This is the scene with the four cops hashing out, the crime at about the third mark, the third way through the movie. Yes. Right, right, right. They're in the diner. They're hashing stuff out. And John in a fit of rightness totally barks down the other guy because the other guy's trying to pawn it off on the FBI. Yes. And, and right, he's like, right, somebody's right. going to handle it. And John says, what do you mean? Somebody, when you say somebody, you mean nobody. And there's this mm-hmm. fascinating conversation. The movie's trying to have about, Men owning themselves, their impulses towards others and what they do with those impulses mm-hmm. and, and, mm-hmm. and, and playing, a, trying to push against the willingness to pawn that off elsewhere right. and say, well, you know, I'm not responsible because X or I'm not responsible because Y. Now I, it feels like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth here of mentioning fatherhood of a young man and where is this coming from and implying just own it. That's not what I'm saying, but I am saying as we mature into life and livelihood, taking some ownership, it's why it's powerful that the end of the movie isn't, uh, Jenna maybe can kill somebody now. That's not the point. The point is right, right. You know, security of self, it's why it's so powerful. I mean, goodness gracious. I mentioned the scene when he's walking away from Forster and the emotion he displays, but when he's parting with her in the dorm room, it's extremely yes. powerful and emotional. Yes. Yeah, but absolutely. then that final shot of him overhearing these douchebags. You're right. Exactly. And, yes. and there's that pause as a father and as a paternalistic figure to want to go defend her and, and him being able to say, I have empowered her. I've done what I need to do. Right. Right. Which, you know, is emblem is, is, is symbolized by the gun. I'm not saying, you know, get a gun. That's not what I'm saying. No, no, of course. But in the context of the film, he has empowered her to not need defending at every turn. Anyway, I'm just trying to identify. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm just trying to identify like this movie does really well by all of its people. And, and mm-hmm. those people's brokenness and those people's need to push past their brokenness into wholeness and health. And I think that's really fascinating and really hard to come by this deftly. No, absolutely. Absolutely. What I was going to say a second ago is what I mentioned earlier when you asked me what I thought was in the drawer. And I had made almost as an offhanded sort of bit of analysis had said well, I think the point is whatever she sees in there has recontextualized her relationship sure, with right. her father. And now with what you're positing, I would I would uh, echo that all the more of the fact that that's the point is you mentioned gun. I think it's a gun. It's sure. It's probably a gun, but I think it's deliberate that the film does not show us that. Right. Because it's not about, right. oh, like you said, it's not about, well, now she can go shoot people. And that's why we don't see that she's got a gun. What we've got is... He has now given her something that arrested her attention enough to recontextualize the way she sees the future of her relationship with her father. That's what mm-hmm. we get mm-hmm. from her pausing at the drawer and looking back 
And from him pausing and choosing, as you rightly pointed out, I'm not going to go be that guy to these guys. I'm not going to do that because I have now given my daughter, I've equipped her with what she needs to be able to take care of herself. And I trust that she will, she will then do that and she will feel that empowered. And I think that's absolutely uh, like, like a supporting element of this film because while the, and this is what's really, really great. While the victims in the film are primarily women, their victimhood is entirely physical. They're, they are of a caliber where they can, they can have, you know, uh, they're reasonably astute. Like, for instance, even something like the ski instructor, where she's defending the fact that she comes running back to a toxic relationship, there's a tremendous amount of self-awareness in what she's expressing. That doesn't mean she's making the right choice, but there's, a, there's at least a legitimacy of, I, I know myself, and I know these choices that I'm making. Same thing for Fairchild, uh, you know, in terms of being self-aware when she's creeped out by the guy in the diner. Um, and, and the other thing that I would say is, again, getting back to the character of, of Julia, the deputy, uh, who eventually becomes the sheriff, uh, I think there's a reason why she is one of the savviest and sharpest and most respected, I would say, among her peers of the individuals in the film. Um, and I think that's important, being that she's a woman. And I think that what the film is 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 largely scratching at is the men in this piece, particularly the father and John, are not aware at all. He's he gives that what I found to be a really powerful speech. I wrote it down actually uh, that when he's when he's confessing in his AA meeting at the end mm-hmm. or towards the end, and he says, "When you're having a nervous breakdown, the only clue that you have." that anything is terribly wrong with your life are the wonderful people around you who keep Mm -hmm. asking, is everything okay? And you just go, and the way he delivered this is brilliant. And you just go, yeah. You know, like this sort Mm -hmm. of like Mm -hmm. denial, aggressive sort of force. Um, And I thought that was really poignant and pretty insightful as as an observation of human nature. It's like, yeah, when you're having a breakdown, your only clue is is probably the people in your life who keep saying, are you okay? Is everything okay? And um, and I think the ways that his father is in constant denial of the physical limitations that he's in, and he's uh, he John is in constant denial of the emotional limitations that he's operating under, and the restriction. And I will say this: my comments are all revolving around Wolf of Snow Hollow, and I'm intentionally not going to bring in like specifics about Thunder Road, but Thunder Road wrestles with this in a dramatic fashion. The fact that this is a horror film, this is um, you know going to be a bit sensationalized in the mm-hmm. way that it mm-hmm. kind of uh, toys with these themes. Uh, Thunder Road is a lot more direct about it in a dramatic sense of things. Sure, uh, just sort of emotional breakdown, emotional limitations, all of these, all of those kinds of things. Um, and I feel like that's very much on his mind as a storyteller to think about the ways in which, and you know, yeah, I do feel like there are echoes of the idea of yes, uh, egalitarianism of you just being a whole person and sort of treating everybody on equal playing fields. There are definitely echoes of that. Um, But I think it is also kind of very directly confronting 
it feels cliche and perhaps a bit cheap to call it toxic masculinity, but I think it's it's confronting masculinity and our definition and our constructs of masculinity in general, even by virtue of the fact that the primary villain antagonist, if you will, is a literal like dresses up like a wolf, <laughs> dresses, sure. yeah, dresses yeah, yeah, up yeah. like yeah. a predator, right, you know? right. Like, uh, e- even that, while being a clever conceit to the film, I think is also deeply rooted in what the film is Absolutely. after, you know, thematically speaking, because it is very, very much about, uh, you know, like this kind of predatory nature and putting on the facade of that. Like, like it's a really chilling moment, but a very affecting moment when the killer at the end, after he's revealed and you first see him in the wolf suit, but without mm-hmm. the head. Yeah. And, and he then he just roars. roars. Yeah. yeah. Oh man. It's a very, uh, sort of, and, and you think about that in the context of the ways you brushed up against this. I'll, I'll kind of directly come up against it is the way that men can sometimes be seen as as if aggression were somehow inherent in who we are um and it can be contextualized that way sometimes in how we're kind of defined psychologically as if like violence or or aggression is kind of one of our primary forms of expression and i've wrestled for a long time in the ways in which I think about my own behavior and the ways in which I'm trying to guide and instruct and parent in the behavior of my son, uh, the ways in which we have to determine exactly what we're going to do with our overwhelming emotions. Sure. Like, what are we going to do with right. that? Right, um, Something as simple as as acknowledging that it's okay to be weepy as a, as a man, as, right. a, as a male. Uh, and something a little bit more direct as saying like, hey, you can't break that toy when you're mad at it or, or, or what it, whatever that looks like. In well, the, if I yeah. can interject, I think I, I will never I will. I hope I will never forget. Um, There's always a place to put the mad you feel from oh, from Mr. Rogers from yeah, beautiful, beautiful day day neighborhood. neighborhood. Yeah. And I even thought in this film read about because uh, I'm not saying, hey, primarily on this mind is egalitarianism and treating women with respect. That is secondary to saying men Mm, mm. deal with your shit. Yeah. Right. Figure out constructive ways to to live at peace with yourself. Right. And think about it. The the red herring is a man who is a drug addict and he's on the fringes of society he's on the socio low on the socioeconomic ladder he is he still perpetrates violence towards women because he absolutely you know he's instigated or you know kind of took some other person i I didn't totally catch who that was supposed to be but um nonetheless i don't think we're meant to know yeah nonetheless um is dealing with his personal demons via drug addiction uh Mm -hmm. john I mean, I love, and I think this is telling for what the movie wants to have a conversation about. I love that it starts at an AA meeting, which is all about owning that you have no control, that you aren't right. You know, like we were talking about last week, being, being drug along by forces that are unseen to you. Uh, but John is an alcoholic. So that's how he dulls these demons inside of him. 
Right. And in fact, he says at that first meeting, he says, if you focus and don't let the monsters inside come out, just focus on the 12 steps, be a better person. Mm. Like, Mm. and, and I think that's him intellectualizing, right? Like it's, it's, I can academically recognize what's supposed to be happening for me. But then at the end, what you identified in that second AA meeting at the end of, you know, I don't remember exactly how it's phrased, but uh, the speech you referenced about everyone asking if you're okay. Mm -hmm. And you've got interspersed throughout it to your point, the, the breakdown trying to talk to the older lady and the breakdown in the dorm room, but neither are fully given into. And in fact, one of the most beautiful, but terrible moments in the movie is when he gets so upset when he's drunk and the daughter has carried him upstairs. Yeah. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And he's, I mean, it's and, heartbreaking. And isn't it a re- and it? It's funny that scene pinged for me because it's a reversal of an earlier moment, right? Isn't there a moment earlier where I don't know that she's drunk, but she's like really sleepy, and he like, you know, helps her up yeah. and puts her yeah, to bed, yeah, and yeah. then later, it's him, and and she, her reaction is is just devastating because oh, she's begging so him. She's begging him, go to bed, go to bed, you know, and and he's just. He's just completely lost in his self-absorption and decays to maybe not rock bottom, but just absolutely, you know, spirals after his dad dies, like just utterly spirals. And we see every bit of that. He's blowing up and yelling at the people at his AA meeting. He's passing out drunk after he's parked his, his, uh, his car in the street at the police station. Everybody around him can see that he's just completely spiraling. Um, and it is, it's, it's, I don't even know what I'm trying to say here. I just, there's a lot of emotional stifling that happens among males in general. Uh, and I think a lot of, a lot of males can tend to be genuinely like uncomfortable with emotional resonance. You and I, I think, and I'll even go so far as to say most of the, male friends in my life are somewhat anomalous to this in that the people I'm 40 years old now. And so by virtue of the fact of just living life and forgive the language here, if it sounds sort of uh, rude, collecting friends, b- building a circle of, of, of people around me, I tend to gravitate towards people who can engage hey, with emotion. Hey, read friends yes. aren't objects. They're not. That's true. Is that, yes. It's not, fine. Fine. Yeah. Fine. Okay. Moving, moving on. Um, so, no, like, um, you know, I, I, I surround myself with people and the and vast majority of the male friends in my life are comfortable with emotional conversations and are comfortable with mining the depths of how we think and how we feel. That just mm-hmm. tends to be the people that I've, that, because I'm framed that way, that tends to be the people that I have, uh, that I have uh, kept close to me over the time, over years. But I think a vast majority of, of people are uncomfortable with those kinds of conversations are not really equipped based on certain societal pressures, based on certain personal pressures, maybe even internal family pressures. Um, I have witnessed fathers tell their young sons, you know, bo- big boys don't cry, you know, stuff like that. Like I've, I've, I've been privy to that in, in either public settings or I've been privy to that in certain social gatherings where I've seen people with their, with their young children. Um, and that is something that I feel like by and large – when you're not given the appropriate framework in which to uh, both contextualize and navigate 
your your emotions, it comes out in large degrees as these sort of toxic, aggressive, destructive frameworks. Sure. Um, and and again, that's not that's not to absolve anyone of bad behavior. Again, just I feel like I've said this to you in off pod context so many different times, where I'm just like, I'll bring up a thing that I know might be problematic. And I'll try to try to say, hey, this doesn't absolve or this doesn't mean this doesn't intending sure, to ignore sure. this other facet. It's just context. That's all it is. It's just context. Um, and I feel like a lot of times when we're trying to explore these subjects, y- you referenced, uh, you know, a, a bit a slant, uh, largely probably out of uh, the nature of the subject and out of respect for me, that this conversation that you and I sometimes have about like. Yeah, I mean, like, there's a certain degree to which we really need to address the ways in which these frameworks continue to enable, push, and propagate toxic behavior in in males to a degree that uh, that it, it it's challenging for me to suddenly hold people account to certain uh, uh, destructive tendencies. When they're 35, 36, 38, 40 into their 50s, and that's when you're trying to intercept the train. Right. You know, last week we talked about in very different contexts about people when they get in over their head. It's like, man, untangling the Christmas lights. You remember remember that analogy from A Christmas Carol where Jacob Marley is standing there in chains and he's like, like, I'm wearing the chains I forged in life. Right. And then he says to Scrooge, the chains you're wearing that you can't see were as full, as thick, and as heavy as this seven Christmas Eves ago, and you've you've labeled on them since. You know, you've labored on them. They it is a ponderous chain, and I feel that Marlene, way. Marlene, Marlene, whoa! <laughs> 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 but I feel that way sometimes about, and I God, you could go so many different places with this. We're talking about you know, masculinity in certain constructs and egalitarianism. But, oh my God, you could say this about racial inequity in America. You could say this about political unrest Whoa, and polarization. But what I'm saying is the, the, the labor that has been done to add to that chain in which we're shackled, like you cannot, with, a, with the snap of your fingers, unshackle or right. untangle these Christmas lights. This takes well, and, hard work, right? Progr- and it, like, and it begs, yeah. it just begs those, those hard questions. And I feel like in most ways I'm lucky to have, because uh, because it it wasn't like it was an active intent over a lifetime. But in most ways I've avoided, um, you know, needing to prove something from a a manliness standpoint, but it's like, sure. what is, what does healthy manhood look like? Right. And the answer to that question will reveal a lot about the, the answerer, you know, that's true. Yes. Um, and that answer will reveal a lot about how that person treats other people. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I think, I think, and it- I think it's a hard I think it's a hard thing to wrestle down but it is a necessary thing because Oh, absolutely. Because my god, we've just I, I don't mean to turn this this is not about a political statement as much as it's just a a gender role in society statement. 
we've just borne witness to one of the most wildly unhealthy uh, uh, examples of manhood that you and I will ever observe in our lifetimes mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. now former president. Like, right. Like right, 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 right. what, what a great display of how literally to never be, but, mm-hmm. but <laughs> let it be said, the Lord works on me, but even that's birthed somewhere. Absolutely. Yeah. You no, know, absolutely. like yeah, yeah. we can point to it at the top of the food chain, but we can say, well, there's still something that has fashioned that outside our visibility and, and the call of you and I, as men to ourselves, the, the call of you and I, me as a man to my daughters, you as a man to your son and how you cultivate that is mm-hmm. to, is to embody a compassionate, emotionally available, healthy picture of manhood yes yeah and and in a lot of ways we're i I, this is me patting us on the back in a lot of ways i think we are at risk of defeating my own purpose here better than most that are out there and in accomplishing some of this or at least in enacting some of this in our lives but it still requires active cultivating and and you know for me as i as my kids develop and grow up and mature and it's like okay well i need to be able to maturely engage them and and Mm, mm. um you know i had this is uh, i can share this i guess um kind of a lovely story but but also a, a humbling one my mother for christmas kind of gave me this uh, this book, it's kind of like, you know, Christian dad type book. I don't remember exact oh. title of it, but, but kind of in a heartfelt moment, she was like, you know, I wish, I wish I had had a father like you and, oh, wow. and wow. what a wild, mm. you know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's this weird moment of massive ego inflation and yet exact yeah, of course. Ex- yes. at the literal exact same moment utter deflation of humility and you know just yes, like right, of humbling course. and and all this sort of stuff but you know it it we have such a we have especially american culture have have cultivated such a disgusting and disturbing portrait of what quote unquote manhood is and right. the need right. to aggressively distance ourselves from that, um, is, is, is high. I think it's funny because ever since you raised the question in a rhetorical sense of, you know, what does healthy and whole manhood look like? My, my immediate knee jerk thought that hit my head not trying to be clever or cutesy here was I hope someday to find out that was the literally the first thought that crossed my mind when you said, what does healthy whole man look manhood look like? And I, I thought, yeah, I I hope someday I can find out. Um, and I think I was noticing just and, and, and reflecting as you're talking that I think a lot of, a lot of it for me, a lot of my understanding of wholeness and health is is only gender adjacent when I am thinking about the only time gender. What I mean is the 
I am only going to sort of open up my heart deeply to fellow male friends. Like that's just a, 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 a choice I make for how to navigate my life. Sure. And that context of knowing that I'm really going to open up really, you know, sort of deep, intimate thoughts uh, about about how I'm thinking and feeling with with fellow men is the only time gender comes into the equation in the exploration of health and wholeness. Everything else that I keep thinking about, I keep thinking about in the context of just like, am I okay? Are you okay? Like, in general, like, try to assess who you are and try to assess what it is you're about. And and to me, as a believer, I think about that in the contra in the in the construct and framework of who did who did God make you to be? Um, you know, I was um, to to as we're recording this, just as we're recording this, um, I have a friend, uh, a, a good friend. Uh, you, you know him, you've met him, um, and uh, he just uh, geographically is is near where we are, and 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 goes to the church that that i and my wife used to attend and and um he is presently right now in a very very hard fight against a very aggressive illness and um i'm going somewhere with this this feels probably a bit non sequitur but but i'm going somewhere with this um as we're recording it today is his birthday and as i was thinking about him and praying for him because he's he's fighting uh, a terribly aggressive illness it it, it Cancer is playing a factor. Uh, liver failure is playing a factor. There's just a, a significant a number of infections, and and uh, it's, it's just it's it's really uh, the the prognosis is pretty dire. And as I was thinking about the last time that he and I had a conversation, because he also ran prior to his getting sick, he kind of oversaw the men's ministry at the church um, that we attended together, and. He and I talked with, with relative recurrence about this kind of thing, about masculinity and everything. Mm-hmm. And and I remember one of the last conversations that we got to have uh, before COVID struck and before he really started fighting his illness. In that conversation, we began to discuss incarnation and embodiment sure. as a subject. And... To me, when I hear some of these thoughts about like, oh, you know, what's it, what's it like for you as a man and everything? I, Nathan, I just, for the sake of blunt honesty, I never know how to answer that. Sure. I never know how to answer that question. I can tell you, Reed happens to be a man. I can tell you what it's like, what that experience is like for Reed. But God, the number of times I've sat in on like couples sermons or something and be like, hey guys, this is what we're like, right? And they, yeah, and they, and, and, and I can, I can relate to sometimes less than none of that. And, and they'll start talking about things and I'm like, this is so foreign to me. I don't, I don't understand what you're, I, I can't sit in that place. Not because I'm, not because I'm somehow superior to toxic masculinity, but just I, I, don't speak that language. Right, right. I just it holds no resonance in my spirit. So to me, when I think about and the reason I brought up my friend is because, you know, in this in this con in this conversation about incarnation and and wholeness and health and masculinity and and femininity and egalitarianism, I keep coming back to just we are we are fearfully and wonderfully made and who did God make you to be? And and who were you fashioned by your creator 
to uniquely live and uniquely contribute to the world around you and the people in it. Like what, what does that look like? And, and for me, it's become a passion of mine at 40 years old to stop chasing this. Oh, I'm the, I'm the man of the house. I'm sure. the, you know, I'm Did the, you ever I'm chase the, that? I mean, I say that as someone who hasn't out there, but in, in, in subtextual ways, sure. because culturally yeah, it's hard it's to, it's hard to get away from. And I will say that even I, to a degree, have used that language to my son when I'd go on like a trip or something and he would be home with, with I, in an effort to kind of empower him sure. to treat his mother right and to be cooperative and everything. I would use that language where I would say, you're the man of the house when I'm not mm-hmm. here. And, and it was meant to evoke, you know, protect mommy, be good to mommy, you know, like that kind of thing. Um, and uh, And I don't know, I think more and more i'm i'm moving to this place where i have to recognize like no it's and and i think this film you know th- this film is largely wrestling with that of just like are are you okay are you aware of right. what's going on right. in your body are you aware of what's going yeah. on in your mind are Absolutely. you are you aware of what you know because because it's not just even getting back a little bit to the film like there's some attention paid in the film to like, why haven't you solved this already? Why haven't right. you figured this out? Right. So, so awareness, and that's talking about the murders that are taking place, but awareness is very much part of the narrative conversation of this film. Like awareness of yourself and of your circumstances and of who you are and of what you are about. The fact that his daughter hits the back of her head and is hurt after being attacked by what appears to be a freaking werewolf. Right. And then she says, to him are you not even going to ask me if i'm okay and yeah, he yeah. in a bit of profound scripting he said no i'm not going to ask you if you're okay and he makes it all about himself no i'm not do you know what your mom's going to say about me you're supposed to be home you're breaking curfew yeah he rattles off all the stuffs you know bad move dad. and no, absolutely but it's insightful in the fact of like yeah you you have no unless you are holy W-H-O-L-L-Y, unless you are wholly self-aware, it is profoundly difficult to be cognizant and aware of what is around you. Because the more you close yourself off to yourself, you are going to be that much more deficient and ill-equipped to be able to properly and rightly observe those around you who are in need of your care, in need of your assistance, in need of... of, and, And... Again, pivoting back to to Deputy Julia, who does seem to be much more profoundly self-aware and therefore is able to be present and be insightful and know when not to speak and know when to speak, not as a woman, but just as a person, just as an individual who knows like when to offer the right level of advice and when to sort of stay her hand on certain things and is very mature in her presentation as a character. Um, and so I, again, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of edging into rambling right now if I'm not already, but that's, I, 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 I feel very much like what we should be about is understanding the, the divine intention behind what has crafted us and not fit those into compartmentalized molds of identity uh, baked in like, oh, well, this as a man, this as a Southerner, this as a Californian, this as a 40-year-old, this as a whatever. Just just be aware of what, as much as you can, of what your values are 
and of how best to live out those values in ways that will propagate wholeness and fullness in the in the life or in the lives of those around you and in the world around you. I think that's really the the and and, and eliminating the need for control and embracing the presence of being part of that and and kind of rejoicing in being part of that. Very lofty conversations. Yeah, I'm with you. But I think, I do think, and not that you were dismissing that spoke of the conversation, but in terms of uh, the identifiers of manhood, womanhood, these, these things, I do think there are external forces that want to push you a direction to express a particular way. And historically speaking, you know, the, her name's Julie. Is that what you said? Uh, Yeah. Julia, the Julie, the Julia's of the world have to be self-aware because they're often preyed upon. Mm. Uh, Mm. The, the Johns and the wolf guy of the world uh, don't have to be as self-aware because historically speaking, they're predators. And, And yeah. again, I paint with a broad brush simply because the work is overcoming those trends. Yes. And yes, yes. it's interesting. Your, your, your drumbeat of self-awareness, uh, as maybe my last contribution before, uh, fog meter, the book I referenced last week that I am reading of, uh, we need to talk one of the first conversational skills she puts forth is, be present or be gone. Mm. And I just, I just loved that. I was like, yeah, that's hard as hell, but that's the goal. And, and I would say that's as much a goal of conversationalism as it is of life itself. Like if you can't, it's, it's, it's John dismissing the other guy saying, you keep waiting for somebody else. There is nobody be present or, Mm. or get out of here, you know? Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, do you feel okay moving to the fog meter? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, you know, just kind of wrapping a bow on the thoughts I've been scratching at. I feel like there's, there's a lot of exploring, not necessarily a lot of explaining. It's definitely lofty conversations and big subjects, but, uh, but yeah, I feel like this film has a lot to, to force us to kind of wrestle with if we're willing to engage it you know, and kind of what it's identifying, even if it's not terribly explicit about explaining those things to us, which is sure. part of why I love it. So yeah, with that, with that spirit, you want to take us into the fog meter or you want me to? You go ahead. Um, so the fog meters are a very specific metric, uh, patent pending, uh, of fear and God. We rank all the material that we cover in those, in those frameworks, kind of the scares and the substance at play in the work. I'll, t- I'll pick up with fear. Um, this this was a film that definitely had some some great jump scares and it had some some great uneasy moments not terribly nightmarish and not even really as gory as i was kind of prepared for it to maybe be for a werewolf film um so i'm going to land at a 7 on the fear factor um yeah and to your point about the the minimal gore it's it is a for its content it's very sensitively portrayed Mm-hmm. Um, um, I think I think uh seven feels safe. It might actually be slightly more generous than the impulse, but I feel generous towards this film, and so we'll do that. There it is. Well, what would you give it for the God Meter? This seems maybe aggressive, but I'm gonna go with a nine. I think. All right. I think this movie absolutely has some serious 
interesting stuff on its mind and more or less accomplishes the bulk of the ideas it's after. Right, right. Um, while I don't disagree with your statement, nine feels a bit generous for me. I think, I think I'm going to go seven and a half on it. Um, I feel like there's a tremendous amount of value to what the film is laying out and to how it's exploring it. Um, and, uh, and, and I do feel like it has a lot on its mind and I feel like maybe multiple repeat viewings of it might bring into more stark clarity, uh, exactly how I feel about some of the things on display. Uh, but it's definitely, um, uh, yeah, it's definitely a film that has, that, enlivened me to go back and revisit it again so that I made sure that I was grasping a lot of what uh, was on its mind and uh, so I could connect more early on in the film to its wavelength. So, so yeah, so that's a, a seven and a half for me on the God meter. And that means in general, we give Wolf of Snow Hollow written and directed by Jim Cummings, a seven and a half on the fog meter out of 10 strong. Um, so yes, very strong. And uh, the important question, as always, is do you recommend Wolf of Snow Hollow to people? Absolutely. I would yeah. go cue it up right now if I could. Yeah, honestly, um, it's an exciting film. It's unique. It's different. It's fun. Um, I think it has a lot of, of value to offer in a variety of different ways. So I highly recommend it. I think it's, I think it's great. So some strong, solid recommendations from the Fear of God team for you. That puts Chapter 3. Of 2020, 2020, 2.0. You love it. three doesn't have the quite same ring to it. So, yes. But, yes. You know you love it. Um, So, that puts that in the books. Next week, we're going to continue this little journey. Uh, This is a little five-part mini-series. I want to encourage you again as we leave, if you have not already, or if you want to submit a second one to submit your your What Scares Us to the website, uh, we'll be cataloging those, and that will uh, largely dictate much of our content through the remainder of the year. Um, As we say on every episode, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but not the end of the conversation. And in that spirit, we encourage you to fear nothing else and be on your way rejoicing. Nathan, thank you, as always, for just uh, having a space to be able to unpack some of these big, lofty, weighty feelings and emotions uh, and thank you for being a trusted friend to help me wrangle all that down sure it. thing man we'll see and you next listeners, week everybody. as always thank you very much as well we'll see you next week bye everybody the fear of god is the beginning of wisdom but not the end of the conversation and you can continue the conversation in a variety of ways You can start by visiting thefearofgodpodcast.com for all the latest news and episodes or for merchandise and to contact us directly. You can follow us on Twitter at The Fear of God, on Instagram at Fear of God Podcast, or join the Facebook Fear of God discussion group. Special thanks to Jacob Hunt of jacobhuntcomics.com for our artwork, to Lee Wright, who helped me, Reed Lackey, write our theme music, and to Tyler Smith at morethanonelesson.com for making our show possible. Lastly, be sure to subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice. And if you listen to us through iTunes, we would greatly appreciate a rating and a review. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week.